0: We made people think we were very big and had a lot of money.
1: I want to pause there. (laughs) How do you do that?
0: Well, we just said it. I mean, we publicized. Welcome to
1: Startup Life. Just phones going off. It's fine. (laughs) I'm Danielle Weisberg. And I'm Carly Zakin, and we are the co-founders of The Skim.
2: And you are listening to our podcast, Skimmed from the Couch, where we talk to other female entrepreneurs about what it takes to get to the top and what it's actually like along the way. We're talking bad advice, the really bad days, management mistakes,
1: the real stuff. No BS. We started The Skim from a Couch, so what better place to talk it out than where it all began, which is a couch.
2: Join us in welcoming Nancy Brinker to The Couch. She's been a lot of things in her life, from a radio talk show host to the U.S. ambassador to Hungary. But you probably know Nancy best as the founder of the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation. It's now one of the largest cancer charities in the world. But back in 1982, the organization was a promise that Nancy made to her sister, Susan, who passed away from breast cancer. Nancy promised her sister that she would do everything she could to stop other women from meeting the same fate. In the almost 40 years since then, Nancy and the organization have raised more than $3 billion to help fund cancer research, education, and treatment possibilities. Nancy,
1: welcome to the couch.
0: Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I'm well, we, such a fan.
1: Thank you. Well, we are thrilled to have you. Um so, obviously, you've been the force behind the Susan G. Coleman Foundation, but this was not your first job nor your first career. So, just kind of walk through what your career path was before this.
0: I'm going to try to make this, and tell me if I talk too long, as short as I can. You I grew up in Peoria, Illinois, as you know, and um, I went to the University of Illinois. I was always um, very good at volunteering and doing things with my sister like the polio epidemic. That was our first opportunity together, to work together. She was nine and I was six. And I was made to go on the stage and perform for our 64 neighbors. So we got together to fund the polio society, only I didn't know any songs or words. And she thrust me out on the stage and said, it's your job to sing and dance. Well, she was the pretty one, and she knew how to sing and dance. She just didn't want to do it. But I did. Have, we had the greatest sense of joy when we took our $100 or $96 or $64 or whatever it was to the po- um, Peoria Polio Society. And I guess I was stuck then forever on doing these sorts of things. Um, I always wanted a life of meaning. I went to the University of Illinois, which was the only university that would accept me, uh, because at the time, and no one knew it, especially my parents, that I was dyslexic. So I had probably the lowest SAT scores in America. And I couldn't get into the only school I wanted to go to, which was the University of Michigan. I, de- I got the decline. The ink wasn't even dry on the application. It came back the next day. Anyway, um, all the way through university, I worked on different things. I was a student senator. I was on the Senate Judicial Panel. I was a, you know, president of my sorority on and on and had more hours outside of class than inside of class. But I learned an awful lot there. So after graduation, my father wanted me to go to law school. I knew I was never going to pass the LSATs or do a good job on that. And moved to Dallas, Texas, because I was fascinated. My aunt and uncle lived there with the wide open fields and the farms and the ranches. And I loved Dale Evans growing up and Roy Rogers. You probably don't even know who that is. But I wanted a horse named Buttermilk and, a you know, a suede skirt with the fringe <laughs> and the whole thing. And a man like Roy. Well, ultimately, I did marry a man who was a lot like Roy Rogers, complete with horses. Um, but ultimately i thought it was a wonderful place it was growing very fast i was fascinated with it and i just uh, ran around trying to find a job again i wasn't going to be good with anything with serious numbers i wasn't a lawyer very few things for women to do then except go to have an education degree and teach or get your what they used to say your mrs degree neither which i wanted to do then um so my uncle my aunt and uncle i lived with directed me to Neiman Marcus, which was the only man, Stanley Marcus, who was my first major boss and mentor, um, the only place was hiring women because he actually believed in the power of women. And um, he was very open. He had a very progressive point of view about everything. And so in Texas in those days, he was sort of considered like, whoops, politically, he doesn't fit in this environment. But anyway, I learned so much from him. And every lesson I ever learned about marketing or how to sell something, how to position something, and how to mainly serve a customer and the market and how it worked was was really through him and the opportunities he gave me.
1: So you became, you you know, you had this decade-long career in PR, and then your life
0: changed. Right. Your
1: life turned upside down. So tell us about um, your sister. Well,
0: I always wanted a life of meaning. I just didn't know what it meant. Mm -hmm. And the day that Susie called me, and she was three years older than I, And I was then working beyond that in a marketing company. And she told me she had a lump in her breast. And I was very optimistic, hoping it was nothing. Um, And it wasn't the first time. And then it happened again. And the last time it happened, the third time, she said, this is different. This is a hard lump. And I knew I had to go home and be with her, which I did. As soon as I got off the plane, I looked at my father's face. And I realized, I, he didn't even have to talk to me. I knew what it was. And when we were little girls, we had gone to New York to visit our Aunt Rose, um, who was very glamorous. She was actually our great aunt. She had had breast cancer. And again, I was nine. Susie was 12. And I saw my sister's face when she saw my aunt undressing. With In those days, they were these heavy prosthetics. They had Halstead ma- um, Radical mastectomies, which meant they literally removed every bit of tissue from your collarbone to your waist, and she was terrified. I, on the other hand, saw it as an amazing opportunity. My aunt was married six times, and none of them died, so my father used to say they escaped. <laughs> I don't think so. But anyway, um, I was always very hopeful and interested because I could see it, it had progressed. Well, lo and behold, she had breast cancer, and um, I tried as hard as I could to get her to leave Peoria because we had so few breast cancer centers in the United States, maybe five or six. One was at MD Anderson What what year was this? 1978.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I just knew she wasn't going to do well because she wanted to stay in our town. Mm -hmm. She went to a very good breast surgeon. Um, They had some oncologists, but nobody really understood the biology of cancer. And from that moment on, I realized how far behind we were because only... Eight years earlier, President Nixon had declared the war on cancer. And I was just finishing college. I was so excited, like everyone in America was. Wow, we put a man on the moon a few years before. Surely we can get our Mm -hmm. hands around this. Well, we couldn't and didn't. We had lots of money that flowed into that action uh, at the NIH and different places. But what we didn't have was any knowledge, real knowledge, of science.
1: How did you go from a devastating family diagnosis to starting this foundation?
0: So I was very, very lucky uh, in that I worked in marketing for a while, and I married a wonderful man who everyone loved and was very successful in the restaurant business. His name was Norman Brinker. He founded Steak and Ale and Bennigan's. Most of you are too young to probably even know those restaurants. And then um, developed and bought Chili's, Macaroni Grill, all of those, and ended up with a very large career reputation and was loved. We were very, very happy we married in, um, uh, let's see, 1981. So this was a year after uh, she died. And he had lost his first wife to ovarian cancer, little Mo Connolly, who was a famous Wimbledon winner of tennis. She was only 34. So he was very, very sympathetic to what I was doing. It wasn't that he gave me a lot of money to fund it. It was that he allowed me, sort of, to access his friends, his platform of friends. And so I told him what I wanted to do create this foundation, because I there was so much disinformation, no information, and fear. People couldn't even say the words breast out loud. Mm-hmm. They called it the big C. Um, they uh, did everything but face it. And we could see we were losing women we loved, and they would just go home and die or not talk about it. So I gathered a group of very, very lovely friends in my living room um, in Dallas, Texas, and asked them if they would help me cure breast cancer because that's what Susie asked me to do. Right before she died, she took my hand. She looked at me and she said, Nanny, I want you to help me cure this disease. She would never say she was dying. She couldn't even say that. And I promised her I would. I want you to promise me. I said I would. Um, Of course, you never really understand or know what you mean when you say promise me to somebody. But I took it to my heart and Very fortunately married him because he was such a good guide and so smart and so balanced. And so we created Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation for Research, Education, and Treatment in 1982. Um, I asked my husband uh, what I should do, and he said, look, I know you've got to raise a lot of money, but I'm taking the company, we're taking our company public next, uh, in a few months, and just don't go around asking all my friends for money right now. So the next day, I never do that, so the next day, I called all of his friends and asked them for money. And they were so nice. <laughs> I can't tell you. <laughs> they gave me go-away money. They, they would sit there and they would t- blush when I mentioned the word breast because you couldn't say the words in radio, TV, film, or newspaper. Okay, so now how was I going to do this? Um, so I went and, um, you know, they were really nice to me. They'd listen, they'd turn red, or they'd take me by the hand and walk me down to the HR department where there was usually a woman who could talk to me. I didn't care. I was happy to get $500, $1,000. It was was all a victory from that moment on because everybody was thinking the same thing. There was no national organization representing women with breast cancer. One out of 11 women were being diagnosed at that time. And it was big, you know. So I tried to connect and hook with a lot of people. I had some, I learned some very good lessons along the way. We made people think we were very big. And we uh, told the world that we were going to Tackle this disease, and we got some media. In those days, it was radio, TV, or you know, there were no. Remember, there were no cell phones, there were no computers, um, and yet we felt this pent-up demand. The minute we announced that, we started getting phone calls and letters from people. I know what you're doing, and then, then some small groups in Washington. Uh, one of my very good friends, uh, a very wonderful woman who was very kind of a big advocate, um, had called me and said. We really want a grant from you. And then it started the ball rolling. People thought we had a lot of money. And we didn't dissuade them because they thought if we had a lot of money that we would have some power, none of which we had. And I realized then we had to have a large grassroots movement to get this done.
2: So I want to back up because one of the questions that we get from our audience all the time is, I have this idea. Uh And sometimes it's something that is a business idea and something sometimes it's something about a charity or something they see in their community and they want right. to change right but they don't know where to start mm-hmm. obviously this all started with a promise mm-hmm. from you to your sister mm-hmm. but as you said you know in that situation you don't know what a promise means mm-hmm. the intent is there but you don't mm-hmm. know how you're gonna do that why did you choose to start a foundation
0: uh, because I'd gone to and and the current, CEO of the American Cancer Society, and I laugh about this all the time. I'd gone to the I, I my husband was so smart and he said, start with the end in mind. What are you looking to do? Cure breast cancer. Okay, who else is doing it? Before you start, who else is doing it? Because it's always easier to find a platform that's you know. And I went to the American Cancer Society meeting, I was invited to go, and I walked up and asked the chief medical director, a man, a wonderful man named Art Hollab. I said, Art would you be interested in me starting this fledgling group, and we could work within the Cancer Society, and we could have a division dedicated to breast They turned me down flat. Because they said, we we represent all of cancers. We can't start having this. Years later, we laughed about it. But that's how you start. First, try not to do it all yourself. Try to really understand the market. Then... I went to the library. I know that's an old-fashioned concept. But remember, we did not have Google. We didn't have any way to learn quickly. So I attended every meeting I could for the next year, met every scientist I could. And I realized then that I thought I was so smart when I started this, You know, put the man on the moon. I can get this done in five years. I realized if I got anything done in 50 years, it would be amazing. So that point in my life I realized I was going to have to always be committed, and I was going to have to talk about this over and over and over, no matter how much people didn't want to hear it. And believe me, they didn't. Dinner parties, you know, it was a subject you didn't want to talk about. So I started talking about it at dinner parties. I started talking about it everywhere. And the same message over and over and over, and telling a story. You must have a compelling story. My story was losing one of the most important people ever in my life, who I still miss, as if it were yesterday. Um, so I so think that's how.
2: That is, um, I think that it's, you couldn't talk about your story without talking about the right. emotional element behind right. <laughs> it, um, which I think that drive, you know, goes such a long right. way when you're starting right. something from the ground up. How did that help you? Because or how did it, maybe and hurt you because it was so emotional right
0: another another thing my husband always told me be first don't be the second like you're first in what you do in skim love skim by the way Thank you. Um, be first uh, so I realized there was no organization and to jump in there immediately and start building it even if we would make some mistakes but to have a plan develop a plan that works start it locally get all the kinks out of it and then you grow it You don't go growing 50 places all at one time. And so he gave me some very valuable lessons about what to do.
2: We'll get back to the show in a minute, but first, pictures.
1: Okay, so I'm very happy to tell you that I was very organized today, and I ordered four things to get framed for my apartment, uh, and I went on Framebridge. Uh, How does it work? It's so easy. Honestly, you can just upload a photo um, from your Instagram. You can upload a photo you already have on your computer, or if you actually have something um, in print, you can mail it in and they'll frame it for you. Um, They'll custom frame your item, deliver your finished piece like directly to you. And instead of the hundreds of dollars you pay at a framing store, their prices start at $39 and all shipping is free. Plus,
2: listeners get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when they use our code
1: S-K-I-M-M, SKIM. I used it today. Uh, Get started today. Frame your photos or send the perfect gift for weddings, birthdays, special events. Just go to framebridge.com and use promo code SKIM. You will get an additional 15% off your very first order. Just go to framebridge.com with promo code SKIM. There's so much that goes into this that was way out of
2: the experience that you had. How'd you fill right. the information gap?
0: Um, again, Mr. Stanley's uh, great advice, always buy the best you can afford, always. Uh, it's not about quantity, it's about quality. I realized we were going to have to get the best scientists, and I was very lucky that one of them lived in San Antonio, not very far from Dallas, as you know, and I was able to get Bill McGuire, who since passed away, to help me form a committee of some of the best scientists in the world to discuss this openly. What was it that we needed to do first? You know, have a strategic plan. And then, um, uh, you know, then you learn the customer is always right. That was one of Mr. Stanley's. And that, by that I meant you have to judge the market very carefully. What is it they can tolerate hearing and what sells to them? The marketing part was very important because we were overcoming a huge stigma. Um, you really were stigmatized if you had breast cancer in those days. You lost your job. In many cases, HIPAA regulations weren't. I mean, treatment was very debilitating and very long. And so there was a lot you had to do. But I think some of those principles that you lose use early, learn early maybe in a first career, never forget them because they're always right in subsequent Things you're gonna do you
1: when you refer to kind of the journey in this you you, you keep saying we and so I, I find yeah. it fascinating because obviously it it it's originated from really a one-to-one relationship with you and your sister and right. it was your promise that you made to yeah. her and yeah. it was your journey that you you navigated how as you as you had a vision that you worked backwards from and we can relate to that from a product building standpoint mm-hmm. of like we always say like what's the goal let's work backwards right. How did you um, create the team? How did you become the we? And how did you learn how to articulate what that goal is? Because, yes, it is a big vision to say, let's cure cancer. And, and there's a lot of places that, unfortunately, like that's still not a goal that's completed <clears throat> in, 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 to the, um, in the science world and the medical field. How did you actually turn that into something tangible for people to um, feel like it could be accomplished?
0: Well, first of all, again, this came from from my husband, watching him build his company. He had over 100,000 employees at one time. And every single thing was we. It is never I. And if you don't care who gets the credit, it's amazing what you can get done, period. And why shouldn't people have a buy-in at a charity the same way they do in a business? Um, I watched Norman give stock options to all of his key restaurant managers. And what I learned from that is that they owned a part of that company. They they were important in voting on how much they should get every year. It, It was just amazing. He was a coach. He wasn't an egomaniac. And therefore, I learned the best I could because I'm very passionate about this and sometimes get a little too strong-headed. The more you make it we and believe that it's we, the more it will be we. And I had we had this vision that we would have grassroots organizations all over the country, but we didn't know how to structure them. And there again, he was so helpful, give them ownership. So all of the affiliates had 75% of the funds, if they raised them, that they could keep giving 25% back to the National uh, Research Fund. And it worked Brilliantly for a long, long time, um, the model was right for then. The model isn't exactly right for today for any of these charities because everyone in the world copied us. But we still have the most important branded sports race for the cure that, and that was that was a great success. But you have to learn to also. Not get your feelings hurt as much as I do. You've got to, you, which you've is gotta,
2: so hard it's, when it is an emotional premise that oh. you're working off of. How the, did
0: you handle that? Well, uh, the first thing I would do is cry, um, and then I learned to stop crying to be, you know, it looked ridiculous. I mean, at a certain point. But one time I realized one of the only ways we could get forward. You refer to it as marketing because though we were getting little donations from people that's not what you need. You needed somebody to give us sort of a push and a company. And I had the idea that government materials there was so boring. If you could have seen them, it looked like the first draft of the Constitution. That's how it looked. You had to read through all the government. Nobody was going to do that. So we decided what we really had to do was, you know, just to keep inspiring people and not be afraid to be turned down. And so one day I said to the group, "Look." I'm going to try to get an appointment in New York with one of the best known bra companies. And I'm going to go in and talk to the CEO. I'm going to get there. It took a, a year and a half to get the meeting. Go up to New York. I sit down with her woman. And um, she, and and all kinds of things happened. She was angry from the minute we got on the elevator without even knowing who I was. Anyway, I walked in and I said, I want to ask your help in something. Breast cancer is, is killing people. And... And there's a way I believe around it. And if we could put a hang tag on your bras that said, have you had your mammogram, even though they weren't great mammograms, or have you done breast self-exam, think of how far we could get. And we could market it, and we could make it the popular. She said, you can stop right there. We do not sell death and dying. We sell beauty and fashion. And our customers are not thinking of this. And I just paused, ready to cry, and I said, what do you think your customers are thinking of? I'd love to know. And she said, the meeting is over. I told you that, and this meeting is over. She got up. She went over, opened the door, and I said, I'm so sorry. I have to disagree with you. This meeting should never have been over. And I walked out, said something like that, you know, snotty, instead of saying, thank you so much for your time. So um, I walk out, and oddly enough, 10 years later, the Intimate Apparel Association in New York gave us their top award. Because we'd managed to get our tags somewhere, and the awareness started. Later, I found out that this woman had died of cancer. Oh, my God. And it could have been that she was diagnosed then, and she couldn't deal with it. But this is the thing that happens.
2: One of the things that is so tough, and it happens every year, um, is planning planning cycles, like strategic planning. There are so many code words for it, but it basically means having a bunch of people in the room talking through goals, talking through finances, talking through hiring, talking through like the map for the next year. You know what makes it worse?
1: When you're really bad at planning, which I'm really bad at in general. But that is why I am very happy, Danielle. You did something very nice for me. You introduced me to HoneyBook. I did. I'm also good at planning. Okay, I was giving you one compliment. Yeah, that's fine. But
2: but not all business owners have a partner in crime to help them through this like Mm -hmm. we do. No, we, they do
1: not. Uh, so HoneyBook is a business management platform uh, for creative small businesses. They they really just honestly help you keep organized. Um, and they actually just save you a ton of money a year by adding time-saving automation. Um, so I am very grateful for HoneyBook in our life. Uh, and we're going to give it to you. So for a limited time, Skim from the Couch listeners can get 50% off the first year of HoneyBook with promo code SKIM. HoneyBook membership includes unlimited access to all of their features at one low monthly price. Just go to HoneyBook.com today, use promo code SKIM to get started. That's HoneyBook.com, promo code SKIM. You are going to like this one. There is no question that what you created was is a movement and helped completely transform the conversation around women's health yeah. and cancer. I want to talk about recent years, um, Mm -hmm. and specifically, let's talk about 2012. Okay. You were CEO at the time, and Susan G. Komen made the decision as a foundation to cut its funding to Planned Parenthood. Talk to us about making that decision.
0: It was not—first of all, I want to clear up something. It wasn't just cutting money to them. It was cutting the money to the program that we'd committed to with them, which we did not feel was as effective in working the way it should have. Unfortunately, the leadership of the organization used it as a political moment— because it was between elections. And it all went down after that. And that's over. We continue to fund them in, in affiliate markets, the organization. But their organization was very good uh, at, at a very young age when we started this. And I was the person, when I was chairman of the board, before I was asked to do this interim CEO job, before they found another person, because I would just gotten out of the White House where I was serving. Anyway, um, and. Uh, You know, it was really it. It was tough because in 1987, I think it was about when we decided to fund them. We loved their community program, their health program. We always recognized that the reproductive part was very difficult because it was very political. We didn't have the money. We never had the money to fight a political war, and it became political. So, even in those days, we understood we had to um, silo off that and only fund. The healthcare part, the mammograms, the cervical checks, the things that women needed. And when we found out, or when some people found out some of that, we couldn't follow the money or the trail and it was being blurred. And there were, that was a period of time when outcomes were becoming very, very important. So you couldn't, and we were very big then. You couldn't just say something was working unless you had the numbers to show it was working. So anyway, it was a very, very sad time in our lives. And one thing I learned is I was asked to come on TV. It was Andrea Mitchell who invited me. And I understood something very very sadly about any TV interview. You're going to get cut off. You never really have a chance. And I didn't have the kind of message points in those days to answer back the way I should have or should have to her. And it was a cascading downward issue because it became political very fast. It was never meant to be political. And I learned some very important lessons that way. Um, And one thing I learned was even in watching this recent um, issue, the issues we're having with our Supreme Court justices, I realized that this is a different era. Um, The people who advised me not to speak out about what happened, I would never take that advice again. You always have to advocate for yourself. You have to be positive and advocate. And if you don't get heard in one place, you can get hurt in another. Unfortunately, we were the first victims of robotic pounding. I found out later where they do the robots and they pound you with lots of emails and things that weren't really from real people, but were a political. um, And I can understand how it got political. I'm not commenting on that. It's just that it happened. So I think
2: you said that, you know, this became a political kind of manifestation of that. So we know that the decision that you at as she came made turned out to be controversial. Yeah. You walked us through that, but how what was your reaction to that criticism? Oh, I was
0: devastated because there were lies told about me, lies about my husband. There were lies and he had um, he was very ill by then. And there were untruths said about me and then one thing led to another. Um, the other part is that I am a Republican, a sworn Republican, but not maybe what you see today. But all of my life, my father was a small businessman. We were raised to believe in a kind of a country where you you, know, you worked hard, you had opportunities. That doesn't mean <laughs> that I am um, part of what today's culture is. I was part of an old, older culture, which... Um, my father was always very close to politicians. My mother was a Democrat. We had a, they had a mixed marriage. I always say, uh, and you know, I supported Adlai Stevenson when I was young. But those were the days when you could support candidates and you didn't have to support a party. I don't know how to say that in a different way, but you had a right as an American to talk about any candidate you supported. I mean, like I'm supporting Donna Shalala now. I like Donna. I worked with her for eight years when she was with President Clinton. But I like prefer to. But you weren't allowed. They didn't give me the decency to not say those things. It's not fair. You know, fairness ought to be considered in any discussion you have or anything you say. We've
2: we've had a lot of um, amazing conversations with women in this podcast. And one of them that stood out to us was Kat Cole, who built her – uh, career starting at Hooters and is an amazing executive. <laughs> yeah, And you can imagine the, the criticism and the questions yeah. that she's gotten along yeah. the way. And she told us that she starts with the assumption that the negative feedback is correct. And that attitude allows her to come yeah. at that feedback with an open mind.
0: Yeah. Do you share that philosophy? Yeah. I think that you always have to listen to your critics. Always. And, you know, I just am I'm sad that um, I got stuck in something that I had no no firm, nasty opinions about. It was not ever political to me or what they did. Or It really was about uh, my consuming part of my life for the last 40 years has been building this organization. So if anything, I had blinders on a little bit. I just thought, gee, it was very successful. People think like we do, do the right thing. And, you know, you have to – so you you have to – Read and listen to everything, as disturbing as it is.
2: So, Susan G. Komen ended up reversing <clears throat> course and reinstating funding to Planned Parenthood. Right. Walk us through how you made that decision. Well,
0: it, it, it made no sense. Our, our, they had bombarded, they spent a great deal of money on their um, um, government relations there. It's not even government relations, it's lobbying. And there was no match for that. There was no way. And they lobbied all of our affiliate groups and all of our sponsors. And one thing sponsors don't like is having to take on anything that's not their interest. And I realized this is ridiculous. Just do a better program. What are we arguing about here? And I didn't go out and never say anything ugly about them. It wasn't that. It was disturbing to me. What I didn't do, the mistake I did make, was listening to the consultants we had at the time. Who, frankly, I think gave me the wrong advice. I should have gone right back out on media, been just as fierce and compassionate as I am about this cause, and say, you know, what it was. But I, I unfortunately was placed in a position where I had to listen to them. I'd never do that again. So,
2: we talked about when you started this, uh-huh. right? Like, we can land a man on the moon. Decades later, we're still talking about how do we cure cancer? How do we get there? Um, do you feel optimistic um, after all of this?
0: Here's how I feel. Um, I feel cautiously optimistic. Metastatic breast cancer is something we weren't able to cope with, though we've funded a tremendous amount of search for a long time. But now the time has come for us to be, which we are very, very um, focused on it, and making making, I think, decent progress, though not the amount of progress I would have wanted to make by now. But I want to see a time now where we seriously eliminate disparities. We have massive disparities in our country, uh, in in breast cancer, cervical cancer, all kinds of treatment, and now's the time for us to build models to deal with that. It takes a long time.
2: Right. Well, Nancy, thank you for coming on. Thank you thank for you very having much. me. And I
0: just again, I love Skim, and I read it every time I get it on my little device, <laughs> and I just appreciate what you all are doing.
2: Thank and you. Thank you. Very much. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch.
1: And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day.
2: Sign up at theskim.com. That's the, S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.